being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong This is Crackpot Toberfest 2022 by Programmed Chill, hosted by yours truly, Jimmy Fallon Kong. Crackpot Toberfest is an exploration of the intersection between horror films and the horrors of real everyday life. Horror films are more than just a source of fun thrills. They're a window into the darkened corners of our world. In this series, I hope to explore several films which knew more than they should which point to occulted truths. Through facing our fears, we learn about the world and about ourselves. Just don't stare too long at the shadows. All right, we are joined today by Blauer, the sleaze king of Apocalypse Confidential, formerly of the Elroy Boys podcast. Blauer is our resident Hollywood man, the dirt digger, the slander scavenger, the man with the plan who's here to tell us the Hidden Secrets from Tinseltown. How are you doing today, Blower? I'm doing great. Uh, yeah, you uh, told me that you were going to swing for the Elrovian fences with the intro <laughs> on this one, and you absolutely delivered. That's incredible. Thank you. You're doing even better before now that I've heard that. <laughs> oh, first of all, it's been a while. It's, it's good to have you on. Yeah, thanks, man. La- yeah, last time we were talking about executive action, mm-hmm. which is a sort of underseen, underappreciated, sort of like JFK, kind of in the same sort of pocket of sleaze, because it lacks the sort of sheen or prestige of JFK, the Oliver Stone joint. Yeah. Yeah, so everyone should go back and listen to that one as well. I think so. Now, do you think that Halloween 6 is underappreciated? I absolutely do. Uh, I Well, so a little background on my uh, Halloween uh, fandom, I guess, uh, is I think I first saw the original in 7th or 8th grade. And, you know, I grew up in a a decadent and depraved household where that was okay (laughs) because, like, my my mom is a huge horror fan and, like, she saw it when she, like, back in theaters when she was in high school so it was like oh yeah of course i mean it's it's family bonding you know at the uh <laughs> the blower household uh watching these movies and so i've always been a halloween fan you know even the atrocious installments which some would argue a lot of people would argue that this one halloween six or halloween 666 the curse of michael myers or just halloween the curse of michael myers is among the sort of atrocious installments. But I think because it is such a good depiction of the sort of like, you know, madness and civilization sort of quality of our modern times and like the way, the ways in which, you know, we're all listening to program to chill. So we're all familiar with the McGowan kind of thesis of like, mind control and serial killers and like this movie is arguably one of the best uh 
depictions of how that kind of functions, I guess. Yeah, and I'm so interested because I gotta, I must confess, I'll get it out of the way early. I saw Halloween, the first one, but like pretty late in life, right? (laughs) Like, yeah. Um, but I loved it, right? I'm a huge John Carpenter fan. Yeah, like huge John Carpenter fan. And then I just sort of like assumed that all the others were bad. And, yeah. you know. I mean, it's a fair assumption. It's sort of 80 <laughs> slackers stuff. Yeah. And like, I think that like, in, if we're talking mediums or whatever, like it, you really have to love a medium to like the bad entries in that. And like, I for the longest time, I was just not like a horror guy. So like. I only wanted to see good horror movies, right? Yeah. So I just never saw any of the other Halloween movies. And then you turned me on to this particular entry where you're like, no, man, this is noited. This is worth taking a look at. So like, I'm, I'm excited because like I watched it obviously, but like, I'm like, I don't know any of the lore. So you're here to sort of guide us, you, me, the listeners into the world of Halloween. So let's get started. I'll be the lore keeper. Well, <laughs> the first the first thing to get out of the way is it's it's a weird one to pick up on because it's basically the it's not basically it is the third installment of a kind of Ersatz unofficial trilogy called the Thorn trilogy, which mm. is four, five, and six. Um six being this one. And uh Four, it was released in 1988, 10 years after the original. So what basically happened, just to do a big macro picture, is after the original Halloween, you know, sort of launched with slasher boom, and then three years later, they came back with Halloween 2 in 81, which is Michael Myers stalking a hospital. And that's mm-hmm. where they established the whole idea of... uh Jamie Lee Curtis, Laurie Strode, and uh, Michael Myers being siblings. Mm. And then they went completely different and did basically a uh, pod movie called Halloween 3 Season of the Witch, which has gotten its shine in recent years. Mm-hmm. And that's basically about like a sort of evil leprechaun uh, Irishman. It's a very anti-Irish film, <laughs> uh, like toy manufacturer. Not what I would not what I would think for like a Halloween movie. Well, it sort of once you sort of like get into it, like a lot of it is sort of. I mean, it's kind of like pan pan Celtic, where it's sort of like ah, you know, it, they're all the sort of same over there, so you know, the sort of traditions blend together, but, like, once you sort of peel back the layers of the pumpkin, as it were, um, like, there is, like, a lot of interesting and weird sort of, I don't know if you would call it necessarily anti-Irish or anti-Celtic, but, like, all the whole, all the sort of old, weird, like, traditions of Halloween or Samhain have been in the franchise from the very beginning. Anyway, that's one of my digressions I was warning about. (laughs) Um, So they went off the Michael Myers book for the third one. And uh, because John Carpenter was like, all right, maybe we can do this as like an anthology series, which I think today would probably be more successful yeah that's sort of in vogue now 
Yeah. Like they would just do like a different kind of Halloween style thing every year. That I but like back then they were in like during the height of the slasher boom, they were like, no, we just want the knife stuff, not the pod <laughs> stuff. Um and so they do Halloween four. And by it's kind of funny because by 1988, the slasher boom had kind of been done already. Like uh I've read like about how like Nightmare on Elm Street revitalized the whole slasher craze, and this was in 1984, four years ahead of time. So like, it's interesting how like these trends sort of ebb and flow and stuff like that. Yeah, because like, sorry to cut you off. Like, yeah. um, when did Scream come out? Because wasn't that sort of like a meta post modern sort of Scream was ninety. 90- Scream was 96, so a year after the Halloween yeah. question that we're talking about. Interesting. So it's almost like the genre was, like, played out and then getting revived. Oh, yeah. And, like, the sort of, like, self-referential smirk of Scream and then, like, you know, I Know What You Did Last Summer and Urban mm. Legend and all that kind of stuff. Um, It's interesting looking back in the context of halloween six because in a lot of ways then halloween six is like the last of like the old school ones Mm. and you know to jump ahead a little bit it's funny that like this movie stars paul rudd Mm. and like had it been made like one or two years later it would have been paul rudd in full-on sort of like quippy kind of like oh great he's behind me isn't he kind of (laughs) mode of like you know, acting and wisecracking and stuff. But because it was made right before that moment, he's like playing it totally straight. Yeah, it's weird. But maybe not totally straight because it's like he does have like a weird, like almost like Vincent Price faux Anglo affection to his voice, you know, like he's sort of like, I met him when I was eight years old, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, anyway, so uh, Alloy 4 comes out, and it was basically the return of Michael Myers. In fact, that's the subtitle of the movie. Um, And this time, he's going after his niece, Jamie Lloyd. Five is uh, more of the same stuff. Five is one of the ones that's considered one of the worst ones. And that was 1989. And then 1995 comes six years later and they do uh, Halloween 6, Curse of Michael Myers. And so, yeah, like this part of the whole convoluted factor of it is that it is like the third part of this kind of like unofficial trilogy within the franchise. Yeah, now I got to ask you, so the Thorn Cycle such as it is is it canonically a separate timeline or do do they talk about how do you get what i'm saying like is it the same universe the whole time or do they retcon stuff oh yeah no uh the halloween franchise is notorious for having all kinds of like branching off timelines Mm. there's a halloween one and two and then four five and six which is their own thing and then halloween one and two and then uh, Halloween H2O and Resurrection, which is like the first sort of Jamie Lee Curtis comeback movies. And then there's the two remakes, Halloween and Halloween 2, from like the 
uh, like 07 and 09 that Rob Zombie did, which, so yeah, those are the remakes. Mm-hmm. And then, and then there's this newest cycle, newest trilogy, uh, that's just simply Halloween, Halloween Kills, and Halloween Ends. And that ignores all of them, including Halloween 2, and is just a direct sequel to Halloween, the original. And then, of course, there's Halloween 3 as its own sort of uh, bastard Irish stepchild thing. <laughs> gotcha. I Yeah, so it's very much almost more like a comic book take in terms of like, how each piece relates to the others. Interesting. Yeah. And it's sort of interesting how like, it's like the kind of the esoterica of knowing, I don't know. I'm, I feel like I'm probably reaching here, but it's like being able to know the, like how the franchise loops within itself and stuff is like a kind of reflection of like, I don't know. It's, it's the original esoteric initiation is knowing where in the franchise these movies belong to, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. Interesting. Okay, so this is very much... Um, so Halloween 6 very much is like the final piece of a trilogy, which does explain why I was lost half the time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And... um yeah, and it's, uh, I mean, there's a lot of other reasons why it doesn't really make much sense, including the editing and, like, there's just all kinds of, like, weird production meddling and stuff like that. Because I feel like, well, one of the uh, main producers, the main producer of the franchise, Mustafa Akkad, who I guess fairly in interestingly he died in like 2005 in jordan and like a al-qaeda suicide bombing really yeah so that's sort of like weird like geopolitics getting in like sort of impinging onto this sort of like slasher franchise he was very sort of he felt like he knew the franchise and that it belonged to him even though you know he was quote-unquote just the financer i guess but like he it was he really felt like it was his baby and so like anytime there was any sort of thing that he felt like deviated from the sort of uh pattern of how halloween movies should be in his eyes he would just like order reshoots and stuff like that interesting is that normal for like a financier to be doing that for like a franchise um, yeah, I mean, I think so. Like, I, I mean, if they're the, they're the guys, you know, they're the people with the purse strings. So I think they can kind of order what they want to, um, you know, for better or worse. I think he was just, but I do think he was probably more uh, uniquely outspoken about it in terms mm-hmm. of creative decisions. That makes sense. Yeah. And so basically, I mean, do we, I guess, do we want to get into the plot or is how, what's, where do we want to go flow wise from here? Um, Maybe I'll make a few general observations, right? Okay. So I'll say this. It's a good movie. You you should watch it, listeners, right? Uh, The editing, I think, is my biggest gripe because there are times when like scenes will switch and it did not feel natural. You know, like 
there's something you can probably speak on it more eloquently, but like the pacing, it would be almost like jarring cuts to different scenes, but like not for a specific end to like make you feel a certain way. It just tended to feel confusing at certain points. Oh yeah. Like there was all very sort of clumsily put together and like Mm -hmm. another huge thing that, I mean, it makes me laugh is like, like the random, like kind of like very mid nineties, like guitar licks at random points where it's supposed <laughs> to be scary. Like, <laughs> uh. Yeah. I mean, like if they, if they would just re-edit it a little bit, I feel like it would have made a huge difference where it's just like, they just stay on one plot for longer because they would like switch to like, there were so many people doing different things too. So it's like if they would just stay with one person longer, like basically a re-edit, I feel would have made a huge improvement. Well, fortunately for you, there is a re-edit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's the producer's cut. And this is a big part of the lore of this movie specifically. Mm-hmm. Is uh so there was the original work print, which is basically what the producer's cut works from. And they, uh, for whatever reason, I think test screenings and then the whims of Mustafa Akkad and all that stuff, they wanted some uh, reshoots and stuff. But by that point, um, you know, Donald Pleasance, who has played Dr. Loomis throughout the franchise, he died. Like, this was like his last movie. And that's why it's in memory of Donald Pleasance at the end. Mm. Um. And so they basically had to like refilm and re-edit kind of like around him because they couldn't reshoot the scenes that would have had him. And so that like creates weird uh, dissonances and just stuff that just doesn't make sense. But the uh, the producer's cut, it, which is like a fabled piece of... Um, of you know sort of like the halloween halloween scene i guess is uh it's far more streamlined and like the pacing actually makes sense and it has a bet in like in some state some examples like it's like totally different like the ending is completely different and in a lot of ways like the motivations of like the cult of thorn people are completely different like hmm. in the theatrical cut, it doesn't really sort of make sense of why they're doing what they're doing. Like they're just sort of like bad guys. Yeah. But then in the uh here I'm trying to find a quote. In the uh producer's cut, there's an exchange between the sort of head cultist baddie, Dr. Wynn, who parenthetically Dr. Wynn is kind of crucial to the franchise because he is actually featured in the original movie um, as like the head of the Smith's Grove Sanitarium where Michael Myers escaped from. Um, And like he is talking to Dr. Loomis and Dr. Loomis is like, well, someone, you know, he was driving great last night. Someone here must have given him lessons and so it, I guess in a you know in a clever bit of a callback, the writers of this one were like, "All right, the guy, the doctor that he's talking to is the guy who gave him the lessons." Mm-hmm. Um, and so basically, this is as far as I can 
sort of glean, I guess, this is the primary motivation of the cult of Thorn and why they use uh, Michael. Look around you, Sam. Madness everywhere. Famine, war, a great plague. These are signs we must restore the balance to the natural order of things. We merely provide the means. And then Dr. Sam Loomis is like, Michael, we've given him the power, the gift of Thorn. I am its deliverer. I follow it, act as its guardians. I act as its guardian. I protect Michael, watch over him. And now it's time for another. Now it's time for you, Dr. Loomis. Um, And so, yeah, there's this like weird. uh, And I feel like that's like a kind of interesting thing and interesting how that reflects in, like, I guess, real-world kind of parapolitics where they kind of excuse our actions by saying, you know, this isn't up to me. This is just sort of the natural flow of things or capital or whatever. Hmm. Now, let me ask you this, because I'm certain, I'm pretty sure that I saw the theatrical cut, right? Yeah. How does one get the producer's cut? Uh, producer's cut is just on, uh, it's funny, it used to be hard to get, and, like, you used to have to, like, get some, like, VHS on eBay or some, like, ripped, (laughs) uh, DVD on eBay, but nowadays it's just, uh, on Amazon. Like, Amazon. Yeah. So, I'll, I'll definitely, uh, recommend when I, uh, post about this episode that people try to find that for sure. And I am probably going to go back and watch the uh, producer's cut because for sure this all sounds like it would solve all the problems I had. Oh, yeah. And the producer's cut has some, like, interesting, uh, like, stylistic choices. Like, I was struck by, like, there's this whole, like, flashback sequence by Jamie Lloyd, who is, forget if I, like, clarify, like, she is basically the niece of Michael Myers, you know, you know, the worst sort of weird, creepy uncle of all time, I guess. (laughs) Uh, The niece of Michael Myers, and because in this sort of timeline, Lori had, Lori had a kid and then like, like died in a car accident. And uh, like, there's this whole like, flashback sequence where she's kidnapped at the end of Halloween 5. And it's done in, like, a pretty, like, surprisingly good, like, kind of, like, like, sort of, like, video black and white gothic thing. Like, it reminds me of, like, something from, like, De Palma's Sisters or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, so there's interesting stuff. And there's more stuff with, like, because at the end of the theatrical cut, of this movie like it isn't really clear what happens to like michael myers like he's just sort of like beaten to a pulp by paul rudd um who his character is tommy doyle who he was one of the kids that laurie is babysitting in the original so there's that sort of through line um he's beaten to a pulp by Tommy Doyle and then they just sort of disappear and then you see his mask and then you hear Dr. Loomis screaming and then it cuts to credits. It like doesn't make any sense at all. Um, (laughs) But in the producer's cut, Tommy Doyle basically figures out 
how to use the runes to stop uh, Michael Myers. And uh, then they get away. And uh, Loomis goes back in to, uh, you know, confront Michael Myers, who's laying on the ground. But he, like, pulls off his mask, and it's that Dr. Wynn guy. Um, And then Dr. Wynn is like, it's your game now, Loomis. Grabs him by the wrist. And, like, that the sort of mark of thorn, because in the... uh, in this timeline, uh, Michael Myers has a very sort of trendy minimalist tattoo where it's a line with like a triangle. And that's like this sort of the symbol of like this thorn rune that basically like controls him, I guess. And that symbolizes and the sort of transference of that tattoo to Loomis is supposed to mean that uh, he is supposed to be the new cult leader which actually would have been, like, an interesting angle for future movies where, like, the guy who had been pursuing Michael for the whole franchise is now supposed to be, like, his, like, caretaker. But, uh, obviously, uh, Donald Pleasance died and they went in a different direction for later movies. So, anyway, that's sort of a bit of a recap for, like, the ending because that's sort of the probably the biggest uh, change between the two versions.
So where, I guess, where do we start with this movie? Uh, I mean, <laughs> first of all, right. Uh, I think it opens up with a, uh, just like we love to do on program to chill. We're talking tunnels, right? <laughs> so oh, yeah. <laughs> the film starts in a tunnel, does it not? Oh yeah. Yeah. And I always found that kind of, that image evocative where it's like, like within the sort of the bowels of this, like, you know, asylum, which is very sort of industrial and uh, industrial and, you know, very like modern antiseptic. Like you basically have this like medieval, like cult dungeon kind of going on. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's like a sort of like perfect illustration of how uh, there's like this sort of interplay between sort of like, you know, the modern like therapeutic state versus like what their goals are or like vice versa kind of thing. Yeah, it's interesting, Blower, because like I think I told you, uh, you know, well, I I told you the other movies I was doing in this series. Right. And one of them mm-hmm. is Girl Interrupted, which I don't know if you recall. But that features tunnels in a psychiatric hospital as well. And so I feel like they pair quite nicely. That one being much more, I guess you would say, maybe more true to life. And this one maybe going more in the fantastical direction. But like, I don't think they're that far from each other as uh, we might think, right? Absolutely. And what was it? Girl Interrupted is like, what, like 98, 99? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's definitely like 90s as well. And I feel like, you know, 90s was in the aftermath of like the like satanic panic stuff. And I say that sort of more as like, because that's the term that we all Mm -hmm. understand it as. I'm not saying that as like, oh, it's all bullshit kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. So, like, yeah, tunnels were definitely on the mind of, you know, the sort of, I guess, public imagination. And, yeah, it just sort of, you just get the sense of, like, the kind of subterranean dracularity of, like, the kind of uh, post-Cold War, like, American imagination, I guess. Yeah. And so, essentially this woman right she's on a gurney and she's she's basically in labor yeah Uh, and that's the jamie lloyd character right and so (laughs) i think it's like nurses right essentially people in like Uh medical clothing and they're like wheeling her into this chamber and then i'm trying to recall exactly but like then you see like people in robes (laughs) like standing around next to the medical staff yeah yeah it's like a weird kind of like mix of like like i said that like sort of like medieval robes and like you know weird menace kind of like crooked dagger kind of stuff with like you know like you know medical scrubs and stuff yeah no (laughs) and so essentially what's happening is that this woman right she's brought in and she's giving birth in front of medical staff and this cult. Mm-hmm. Now, we sort of alluded to it, but uh, who is this cult that uh, is depicted? 
The cult is uh, the cult of Thorn, and uh, Thorn is basically uh, in like a, I don't know how obvious. I mean, this is a slasher movie, so none of this is going to be like accurate to how things really are and stuff. Um, yeah, but it's basically like a Celtic rune, and uh, but more like sort of specifically within this context, it's like. I'm quoting from the Halloween movie uh, fandom wiki, you know, the most reliable source on this stuff. <laughs> uh, Thorn refers to an ancient, dark, and supernatural demon or force that bestows great power upon people who are possessed by it, dating back to the time of the Druids. And basically, it's this sort of curse that forces whoever is, you know, uh, afflicted by it to kill their entire family. Yeah, which is like interesting right i mean i'm already thinking of like various things where <laughs> uh i mean in the pop culture sphere it's almost like the um what is it the sith where for some reason the uh apprentice always kills the master which i'm not really sure yeah. why you would ever take an apprentice then but or um i have heard of in much less specific detail like weird pacts about killing your parents i mean which may be the most visible being the menendez brothers i'm not sure exactly how oh, true yeah. any of that shit is right but like i've heard tell of like weird things like that well it's kind of like the ultimate it's like the ultimate act of transgression is like killing yeah. your family like it's you know it's one thing to just kill random people but, like, to kill, like, your own, like, flesh and blood is, like, a transgression that's beyond the pale kind of thing. And sort of, now now that you mentioned that, it is sort of interesting thinking of it within the context of this kind of, like, 90s delirium. Because, like, you had all these cases, mainly in, like, the late 90s, but kind of, like, starting in the mid-90s. Yeah. Of, like school shooters and stuff like that like we had one here in oregon uh named kit kingle uh who like he started his school shooting rampage by killing his parents and so it there it's always like the locus of this sort of malevolence is in the family unit and you actually see that in this movie because yeah. like the main family that we see, the Strodes, who, like, within the sort of, like, uh, nerdy lore thing, this fam, like, the patriarch of this family who gets his head blown up by, like, the electrical thing, um, his brother is the guy who adopted Laurie Strode. So, like, they're sort of, like, cousins of Jamie Lee Curtis in the original. Um, so, like, you have, like, the sense of, like, the rot of you know whatever is whatever you want to call it the rot is beginning in the family and um and like in a way that it's like almost deserved but obviously not because like you know killing people is bad i guess <laughs> and so but yeah it's a like when you consider it within like the context of like the family killings in like the 90s and like the menendez brothers in like 89 or 88 like it is sort of yeah it's more interesting than 
just like seeing it on its own, I guess. And it does sort of add sort of like a like a Greek tragedy component. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And it add and it just sort of adds this kind of like the miasma of like that mid-90s moment of just like paranoia, but it wasn't paranoia about like, you know, the damn Soviets anymore. <laughs> it was just sort of like paranoia about like, you know, youth culture. And just, like, you know, other people in the country. And just, like, this, like, you know, everybody has this, not everybody, really, but, like, the popular kind of understanding of the 90s is that it was, like, this sort of, like, idyllic decade between, like, the end of the Cold War and then 9-11 and then things changed forever. But, like, the more and more you look back at it, like, it was, like, an absolute, like, terrifying shit show. Yeah, and like you had like the sort of like rise of like SSRI dependency, and I'm not you know judging anyone who like takes them, but obviously that's there have been issues there, and like just sort of the rise of like you know gifted kid burnout, like a lot of weird like public school specifically kind of strangeness. Like for some reason, anytime I watch, uh this movie like i instantly think of that old like what is it like 2020 dateline thing about death education and like Mm. they're talking about columbine and this was like made in like the early 90s so like years before the shooting and so like yeah i don't know it's just sort of I'm rambling here, but it just sort of is like the perfect sort of illustration of like this kind of like toxic death obsession that we kind of like choked through in the 90s, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think you and I both remember the 90s. (laughs) And although I was young, right, like I do kind of recall there being a lot of like fear. And I don't necessarily mean me or my family or most people I knew. But like in the media, right? In the popular consciousness. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there was just like this like weird fear about things that were just out of frame. Like yeah. you could there's a lot to be afraid of in terms of like, oh, I don't know, take your pick for all kinds of things that listeners of this show might think of, like, oh, I don't know, Oklahoma City bombing related federal government <laughs> abuses or you know, fake terrorism, on and on and on. Mm. School shootings, like serial killers, like all of these things, UFOs, right? A lot of the weird paranormal shit with like the X-Files, like all of it is like truly not, it's like it was never really the focus of like what people seem to actually be afraid of, you know, or I mean, you know what I mean? Like with serial killers, it's like, it's not really the thing you should be worried about versus like this or that. I don't know. Like, yeah, there's just a lot of weird paranoia in that, that time period. Well, I mean, it's like to take this sort of classic image from the original Halloween where like Michael Myers is like sort of staring at the teenagers from beyond, like just behind the hedgerow. It is that kind of just fear that's just kind of in the bushes, in the hedgerow. Mm. And it's like most sort of pronounced in like suburbia because I feel like part of it is 
the quote unquote, like, you know, holiday from history thing that they like to harp on about like the nineties is like, well, if everything is so perfect, then obviously there has to be something deeply, deeply wrong. And of course it, things were deeply, deeply wrong, but like th there's, there was a kind of somehow it it's sort of like an, uh, like a, an unknown known, I guess, you know, to borrow mm. from Donald Rumsfeld. It's like <laughs> they knew it, but they didn't know that they knew it. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, let's see here. Okay. To get back to the film. No, I think that was good, but I'm saying like, so essentially Jamie Lloyd, the character, she gives birth, right? Mm -hmm. And I wanted to run this past you because I was taking notes. <laughs> Um, it's so funny to take notes during a movie, but it really does help, right? When you're doing like an episode on a movie, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so I wrote something like, yeah, this is like weirdly kind of like a cinematic extension of the end of Rosemary's Baby. Oh, definitely. Right? Isn't it? Because it's like, obviously the details are like different in terms of like the quote unquote plot, but like the idea of Rosemary's baby, which is like this woman may be raped by the devil or something. And then she gives birth. And then like this satanic cult takes her baby away. That's like the end of that movie is almost like the beginning of this movie, at least in like that sense. Yeah. Um, well, and I mean, like the rape by the devil thing is very sort of, resonant because in the producer's cut i think it's probably a little bit implied in the theatrical cut but like in the producer's cut it's basically explicitly said that like michael myers rapes her whether by yeah. like you know they actually you know you know force him on her and like do the bump and uglies or by like artificial insemination or whatever but yeah like her child is basically the shape incarnate you know yeah no some at least some stand in for some unspeakable horror basically yeah exactly and then it's interesting because then to get into sort of a little bit about like what the cult of thorn people are scheming is they basically have this child created or procreated you know however means you wish to consider canon, but the the child is created in order to be destroyed because basically the plan is for then uh, Michael to kill the baby. And then that kind of like completes his like sort of bloodline vanquishing uh, obligation. Mm. Which this also, again, reminds me of like the movie, the believers, uh, which have you seen that movie? I have not, no. Okay. I think you would really groove on it. It's It deals with uh, related themes, but basically it's like a satanic cult that a guy at the climax of the movie is, they essentially are trying to get him to sacrifice his own child. It's pretty mm -hmm. fucking gnarly shit. So like similar idea. Oh right? yeah, I've heard of this movie. Yeah, no, you would probably like it a lot, I think. But like... And it's just, like, a weird, like, idea being brought up here. Like, you know, like, so within the, 
like cosmology of Halloween six, what exactly is him killing the child supposed to do? Like fulfilling the obligation of killing his own family. But like, I forget if they say, if there are any like effects that that has on the world. Yeah. I mean, it's never really explained because, and it doesn't seem like it does anything because then like within the cosmology, as you say, then the curse is supposed to be transferred to Danny, who is that one sort of like blonde haired little kid of like this new Strode family. Um, And like, then the plan is for him to kill his mom, who is like the sort of like main, like female protagonist, but like it doesn't, I mean, I guess it's sort of reflective of how like, you know, solutions in real geopolitics and parapolitics aren't really solutions. They're just kind of like perpetuations of how perpetuations of like this thorn machine because it's like, all right, so he's done with his job. They just pull in someone else to do the job again. But like, there's no actual like, okay, finally, there's no more, you know, poverty or whatever. Like, it just is like, a thing that kind of perpetuates itself for black yeah because like i guess on the one hand my main gripe with the movie is that the editing could have been better on the flip side i do wish that like the actual motivations for the cult of thorn were clearer because like i i don't know a lot of cults that uh participate in human sacrifices that aren't having at ultimately like a very mercenary relationship to it right like you're getting something out of it and it's usually something quite valuable yeah and it's weird because that isn't really even cleared up then in the producer's cut because it's like that quote that i read you read earlier of like from when which is basically the closest we'll we get to like a sort of like you know a villain laying it all out monologue kind of thing um, but like it doesn't really it's like well there's gonna be all this stuff like you know based on the uh based on your logic of the like you know they Michael finishes his shift of duty I guess and then it moves on to the next kid it's like so then the madness never ends and it's just I mean on one hand you could probably chalk that up to like bad writing and i would definitely say you know it is probably bad writing but then on the other hand it's sort of like all right well if you squint hard enough and i feel like you i feel like the big thing about this movie is like well if you can squint hard enough it can function as like a meta commentary i guess yeah yeah because like correct me if i'm wrong i'm not exactly a anthropologist but like i think in ancient times right didn't they sacrifice people basically for like good crops and like rain and shit yeah i mean they i think they sacrifice people just to like make sure the sun goes up the next day and i mean you Mm -hmm. know now in our position in like you know 80 2022 um we know that the sun is gonna come up although you know never you never know when the (laughs) roland the roland emmerich sunfall thing is gonna happen um (laughs) but like you know looking at it now it's like all right well it's sort of just 
a thing to like perpetuate a certain order. And I think that's where it gets sort of more into like the parapolitical stuff maybe yeah. is because it's like these people are like, that is their sort of like external kind of maybe mystification. I'm still unclear exactly the context of that word. Although I, I like how it sounds, but like, I'm not sure how to use it correctly in each <laughs> instance, but like, it's like their sort of external mystification of what they're doing but like if you look at the sort of makeup of the cult of thorn especially in the producer's cut where it's like the sheriff the lead doctors like the sort of town elders and you realize that it's basically just a kind of ongoing machine to like keep like the riffraff in line the like the town like teenagers and stuff yeah no it is interesting because like on the one hand we can chalk it up to like maybe you know not to be uncharitable but like maybe bad filmmaking to never explain it but on the other hand like so many things in real life are never explained yeah you and i were talking about organized crime right and it's like so much of what people do like someone will get whacked because someone like owed vig for this and it was causing this problem and all of it if you were to boil it down at no point would anyone say yeah we're doing this because the the machine needs to keep functioning and the yeah. like the machine being like printing money through crime so that the guy at the top can like live well and it's like yeah. no one would ever say what their role is as a cog in the machine because they don't want to like acknowledge that they're just a cog in a machine and so like no one in this cult would probably ever explain what the point of the cult is because like they probably don't want to face the reality of it or whatever so it's like real life i guess right yeah it's like oh wait a minute we're we're just kind of like a dead teenager machine like <laughs> yeah basically <laughs> oh that's funny okay so in terms of the movie progressing, I guess Jamie Lloyd escapes with her baby. Mm -hmm. She's aided by some people. Um, she is pursued. You know, there's like a extended scene where they're, cha you know, the cult members are chasing her in their car. Um, she goes to a couple locations. She finally uh, gets away, right? Yeah, well, it's interesting. She goes to the bus depot, mm -hmm. right? I think, and yeah. that was always I've always found that interesting, just because it like sort of like places. I mean, it literally places Haddonfield on a line, like you see like a sort of bus line. And so I don't know. It's as a Halloweener, I was like, all right, that's a good bit of world building. Um, <laughs> but it also just sort of like enhances like the the emptiness i guess of the landscape it's like when you're the only person it's like there's no more alone feeling than when you're the only person in like a bus depot i guess uh -huh. yeah. and i love seeing bus depots in movies like yeah all of them it's always fun <laughs> oh yeah big public transportation nerds up in here um <laughs> And then, yeah, she goes to, or I guess she's, like, basically run off the road um, into a barn. Mm. And then she is basically impaled on, like, a corn thresher or a hay thresher or something. 
And like that scene was always surprised, especially when Michael like turns it on and basically like rips her like insides up. That part was always like super gnarly to me because you know, say what you want about Michael Myers, but he's a traditionalist about it. He just uses some knife. <laughs> and so and so like when he like when he like shoves her on that, like it almost has like the vibe of like a like a new French extremity movie, like those like mm. French horror movies from like the early two thousands. Like it's just like a very sort of gnarly kind of mix of like a human person and then like this like jagged industrial thing. But yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny too, because like I feel like in this movie, Michael Myers like really you know exploring the medium of killing people because I feel like he like breaks someone's neck at one point. Oh yeah. Yeah, and like, you know, hatchet explodes someone's head by like sh- like stabbing them into like the electron what is that called? Circuit board? Mm-hmm. I'm blanking. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um yeah, he does all kinds of stuff and like actually yeah, it's been sort of commented on. It's like this is him at sort of his like most like aggressive and brutal. And so it sort of fits within the kind of like you know, thinking of it, it's like he's sort of, he's at the end of his shift, he just wants to die or go <laughs> home or whatever, and he's like, alright, fuck it, I'm just gonna, you know, balls to the wall on this thing. Well, it is weird too, right? Because I told you I was doing Texas Chainsaw Massacre 4, and mm-hmm. in that movie, no one dies by a chainsaw. Huh. And in this one, like, the conventions of, like, Michael Myers just straight stabbing someone, like, so it's weird how like in the two movies that sort of like start to break down their own conventions are also the ones where like weird noited shit shows up. Yeah. I feel like there maybe is some relationship between like breaking out of the standard genre conventions and like exploring these ideas maybe. Yeah, it's like the ultimate enemy really isn't just the sort of the mode of dispatching. Well, it sort of shows to rephrase it. It's like, and I haven't seen actually Texas Chainsaw Massacre four, so I'll, I'll learn more when I listen to that episode. Um, but like it demonstrates that like the real instrument, at least in this case, the real instrument isn't the butcher knife. The instrument is Michael Myers. And so However, knives he, don't kill people. Michael Myers kills people. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a good point. <laughs> um. Okay. So, uh, basically, Jamie Lloyd. She. I'm like thinking because, like, I know that the film breaks up these discoveries, but basically, Jamie Lloyd hides her baby at the bus depot, and then she mm-hmm. dies in this barn. Yeah. Later, they discover. Uh, what is it? like burned into like the barn the symbol of the cult of thorn yeah that's the mark of thorn yeah Mm -hmm. and so the police discover that and they're just like oh what the fuck (laughs) and then of course you see in the producer's cut that like the sheriff so the boss of those cops is part of the cult of thorn anyway so it's like Mm -hmm. It's like Edmund Kemper going to hang out at that cop bar. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then I guess 
it would be good to talk about Dr. Loomis maybe, because I think that's, they showed that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was, he's been in the franchise from the, you know, he's with uh, Myers from the very beginning. His character is basically Myers is a child psychiatrist and doing a great job. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, like any good child psychiatrist, he uh, tries to kill his patient. Um, <laughs> and by this installment, because in the Thorn trilogy, he goes like full on like Captain Ahab, just like, you know, like shouting and like saying, I just have evil on two legs. Like, you know, like he, there's nothing good <laughs> left of him, blah, blah, blah. Which a lot of now, and you know, thinking back on it, it's like probably a lot of that is just him being like, oh shit, I did a shitty job as a psychiatrist. I just need to say this is a unspeakable evil. Um, <laughs> and, but like by this point, you know, he sort of slowed down. He's retired. I don't know if the actor Donald Pleasance actually had a stroke. But it's definitely, or if it was just like a sort of character choice, but his character had like a stroke. So that's why he like talks very slowly and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and he's working on some kind of like memoir or book or some other. And he's a listener to a uh, sort of like shock jock radio program, like Barry Sims, who I think they wanted to get uh, Howard Stern to play him. Oh, uh, he should have done it, man. Yeah, yeah, that would have been perfect. Because, like, I really feel like the shock jock... Okay, there are points at which he doesn't do a good job, but, like, this er first scene where they they have him is, like, yeah. pretty entertaining. I enjoyed it. Yeah, like, I could have gone, like, a whole, like, uh, like, a classic sort of, like, oh, man, like, imagine if they got, like, Art Bell to play him. Oh, that would be so good. Oh, man. Because, like... The Paul Rudd character is sort of like doing kind of like the classic corkboard shit, right? While listening to the show. He's listening to the show and like, that was actually, and like, actually this is an example where like the theatrical version is kind of better than the producer's cut because like you hear more of like the callers and theatrical cut and you hear that caller talking about like he was taken by the CIA and he's the ultimate, you know, assassin for them. Um, <laughs> and uh, and then that's when, yeah, uh, Tommy Doyle, Paul Rudd, he's like, I first met him eight years ago or not eight years when I was eight years old and blah, blah, blah. And like he has and this is sort of like a cool kind of glimpse into like that sort of like early internet kind of uh, paranoia kind of conspiracy stuff. Cause like he has like on his computer, this obviously like his whole thing called like project Michael Myers. <laughs> and that has like the classic sort of like, what is that like kind of green kind of thing yeah, um, yeah. with Michael Myers's mask. And then it has like the next thing is like, all those runes and so like yeah like you said he's obviously done like the kind of like corkboard thing but it's very it's in line with this kind of like mid-90s like at home paranoia because it's like kind of all through the internet like you can easily like imagine you know uh paul rudd's character like going on like 
Usenet, Usenet boards and like talking about like, what is Michael Myers? What isn't he? And all that stuff. Yeah, because they make his character like a shut-in, but then he doesn't really like act like one. So, I mean, yeah. yeah. But yeah, so multiple different characters are listening to this call-in show. And um, one of them, I think, actually refers to, or maybe Dr. Loomis refers to Michael Myers as a serial killer, which like, isn't he kind of more like a spree killer, if we're being specific about categories? Yeah, definitely. Like, he doesn't really do the sort of whole, like, you know, handful and then cooling off period. And, like, yeah. Mm-hmm. He is closer, kind of, and it fits with the whole, you know, this sort of 90s thesis we're going in. Like, he is sort of much more of, like, and I guess, like, the sort of school shooter vein or something like that. Yeah, it would be par for the course for the child psychologist who so completely fucked up his job as to <laughs> make Michael Myers. Uh yeah. Okay, so basically Dr. Loomis though, that stormy night, right? He's visited mm-hmm. by who? He is visited by uh Dr. Wynn, Dr. Terrence Wynn, who is his former colleague at Smith's Grove. And uh he has an appearance in the original Halloween, um, which I mentioned earlier. And then at the end, you know, spoiler alert, it's revealed that he is the man in black who he would. So the man in black was a character who was sort of teased throughout and meant and like sort of shown throughout Halloween five, mm-hmm. which is also where they got the uh, sort of uh, Mark of Thorn tattoo thing. Basically, what they did for Halloween five is they included the man in black, they included the Mark of Thorn tattoo and they were just sort of like, all right, we don't know what this means, but we'll leave it up to the, you know, the next, you know, people to figure that out. You know, that's classic Hollywood movie making for you. <laughs> um, but then it's revealed that the man in black is uh, this Dr. Wynn guy who is the secretly like the leader of this cult of Thorn. Yeah. And I did want to say, too, I think at Dr. Loomis's house, uh, as Dr. Wynn comes to visit him, you can see pretty clearly on the desk Freud's book, Civilization and Its Discontents. (laughs) Right? So very much like at least alluding to the idea of like, yo, no lie, sometimes civilization's fucked up. (laughs) Absolutely. Which I think is like as good as you're going to get for most horror films, and it's good enough for me. I'm fine with that. Yeah, we'll take with this movie. We'll take anything we can get from it, right? <laughs> um, let's see here. So essentially, Doctor Wynn is like, "Hey, guess what? Michael Myers is back." <laughs> yeah, more or less. Yeah, I, I, we need to get the band back together to stop Michael Myers. Basically, yeah, just, just one last show, one last <laughs> hurrah. Well, and then just sort of going off more like so. Basically, in his like man in black guys, I guess he like sort of wears like a I don't know what kind of hat you would describe call that, but like you know, like a wide brim hat or something. Yeah, um, and like he appears to uh. Danny Strode, who is this sort of basically the next Michael and waiting of like the Strode family, 
which is they've moved into, they basically moved into the Myers house to prove that it's not haunted and because they can't get anyone to sell it and, uh, or buy it rather, they can't sell it. And, you know, that's sort of, I've always, I felt that was a kind of like resonant way sort of showing how like a capital requires sacrifice because when, the husband and wife are talking. It's like, she's like, you knew what this house, you know, contained and like what it like sort of threatened potentially. And like the only, the reason that he like basically put his family in harm's way potentially is because like of money, basically, you know? Yeah. And then, so yeah, Danny Strode is being basically, I guess, menaced or trying to be coaxed by win as a man in black and i always in that one scene where like he's like in his bedroom and he sees the apparition of the man in black in like the corner of his room reminded me so much of like you know those like hat man stories yeah no uh, yeah 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 the hat man where it's like yeah i I took three benadryl and i saw the hat man in the corner of my room kind of like sleep paralysis (laughs) stuff and it's like, I don't know when those started, but it, it was interesting. Oh, it's like, oh, shit, that's like a sort of creepypasta thing now. Yeah. I did want to run the idea past you, too. Doesn't Danny kind of look a little bit like a blonde Michael Aquino as a kid? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. He just needs a, he needs a little more uh, plucking and, like, teasing of the eyebrows, but... Yeah, his eyebrows aren't that far off from, like, a yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, like the base materials are absolutely there. It's like that weird thing where it's like that the little kid from Children of the Corn. I think I always get confused if it's the Omen kid. They all kind of have that like weird satanic look to them. Yeah, it's all this sort of like weird angelic, but inverse of angelic, like Vul- Vulcan sort of. Yeah, blonde, like, pot. Like, you see that, too, with, like, Children of the Damned. And, I mean, you see it, too, with, like, the original Halloween. Like, in the original Halloween, Michael, after he kills his sister when he's six, is that kind of, like, you know, blonde-haired, like, kid kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, Let's see here. So, I'm trying to remember. So, what's the name of the character that's, like, the dad... I guess he's one of the Strodes. Yeah, the asshole dad. I think it's John. Yeah. So he also, kind of like the shock jock, was like injecting a bit of color into the film by like being the biggest dick possible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like he, ha- it's funny because it's like he has like the vibe of like the the bad family. Like he ha- he like reminds me of like something out of like. I don't know, Uncle Buck or like Christmas vacation. Like he seems like he should be in like one of those. It's like, oh, those are like that's the bad family, and they put up like the most like insane Christmas decorations. (laughs) Yeah. So it's interesting like seeing him within this context. Because it's like within like that previous context, it's like maybe he would be just, you know, obviously an asshole, but like fairly harmless. But then place in this plot like he's like an actively like sort of almost like next to michael myers and uh 
Dr. Wynn, like, he's, like, the, like, antagonist. Yeah. And, like, there, there's, like, weird, there's, like, some, like, theorizing that that Danny Strode kid is his son. And so, basically, like, weird, like, incest rape stuff with his daughter. And, like, that's why he doesn't like having her around. And, like, that's why oh, he calls really? her, like, a bastard. Yeah, that's been some, like, theorizing. Interesting. So is that coming from like the novelization or is that like fan theories? Because like I do I'm interested by the idea, but yeah, what uh it's fan theories. It's sort of I mean like all fan theories is just based on look at the way he looked at him and stuff like that. Sure. And and in the uh producer's cut, like in so in both versions, there's that part when he's like at the office after talking to his wife, played by Kim Darby, who was in uh, True Grit and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, like after he's talking to his wife and his wife is like, oh, I don't want to be here anymore. We got to get out of here. We're going to be gone by the time you get home. Join us. And then he uh, pulls out his... Uh, whiskey bottle the classic office whiskey bottle <laughs> and takes a shot um so in the producer's cut he before he does that he like takes out like a framed photograph of his daughter and it's like happy halloween little girl in like a very sort of like weird lecherous way and then takes a shot and so like because of because of that sort of moment the theory is that uh, Danny is like the product of rape, which go which goes into the whole sort of theme of like you know the family unit potential. You know, if it doesn't go right, dysfunctional family units being like the ultimate source of rot and stuff like that. Yeah, no, because like around the same time, Twin Peaks, of course, was exploring that idea, and like in the nineties, that was like part of the satanic panic right was basically a more subdued understanding that so much of that shit was going on and it's just like oh well good thing we resolved that conflict right like right uh no that is an interesting idea because like it i like it's a horror movie so like when the entire family gets murdered you're not that surprised, but like typically with like a lot of horror films, it's not like an entire family getting wiped out. It'll be like a group of teenagers or something. Mm-hmm. But this is like different, right? Because it's like the entire family. I mean, some of them get away, but like, yeah. Yeah, you don't usually see like the adults like sort of get their comeuppance. Right, exactly. And so like, it's almost like the logic of the film would support that idea interesting um do you want to explain how Haddonfield is dealing with Michael Myers <laughs> oh yeah well they just sort of uh decide to ban Halloween and which I mean I guess you know within the context of this timeline makes sense because you know within this timeline it's all about constellations and like you know the star, the constellation of thorn, and like, you know, the certain, you know, resonances of Halloween or Samhain and stuff like that. You know, it makes sense for them to ban Halloween, but like, 
it is funny how they're just sort of like, oh, I know what we'll do. We'll just ban the holiday. That'll fix it. <laughs> it's kind of like uh, just the idea of just banning guns or something because they keep being school shootings. Just that yeah, like exactly. 90s, like black and white attempt to just solve the problem by banning something. Absolutely. Yeah, that's funny. Um, but okay. So, but in Halloween six, are they? did they officially unban it finally or were they just like having the youth attempting to bring it back I'm trying to recall because they have like a Halloween party and I know that a lot of the like some of the Strode kids are like involved in like a almost like an activist thing to try to like get Halloween back yeah there's that like fair and so I think they finally you know this is a great example of youth activism (laughs) and they managed to finally petition their government to lift the ban on halloween because it i'm just thinking that i don't remember specifically but just because that fair had like a lot of other people too like if it had just been like a bunch of rowdy teens it would have just you know i don't know been like a an unsanctioned halloween event but like it seemed like it was like a whole town deal yeah, because the shock jock is like doing like a show downtown or whatever. Yeah, um, but also, so the Danny kid, right? We alluded to it. He keeps having different types of visions, and like that's like a good like stand-in for how like messy this movie is. Because that would be an interesting plot if that were like one of maybe only two or three things going on. But there's like four or five different things going on so it becomes a little bit hard to like give any one thing the proper attention uh within the film right yeah absolutely it's like there's like too many sort of kids and like and like the plot or the pot or whatever because it's like all right so you have this one kid but then you have the baby and it's sort of like all right so which is which is sort of like part of the whole like cult of thorn scheme and which is just like in the house or not. Yeah, exactly. A lot of moving parts. Um, Let's see here. So basically the Strode family starts getting got and the police are sort of like starting to worry. Like Dr. Loomis is like running around, not really doing anything for most of the film, just sort of like, being like, damn, I hope Michael Myers isn't back. <laughs> but he is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, let's see here. There's a flashback to when Jamie Lloyd, the character, was ritually raped uh, in a sort of the same underground cave situation. Mm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, what do you think? Does it make sense to talk about Danny when he sort of finally starts talking to Lord, I don't even remember which character he's talking to, but he's like explaining his theories about everything. Oh, you mean, wait, you mean the little kid or Or Tommy? I think, I think Tommy, sorry. There's Danny, there's Tommy, there's there's all kinds of people. Well, cause I mean, this this just shows how fucking, perfectly edited this movie is because i can't fucking <laughs> remember like what happened before what after what all this stuff um 
eventually, so I guess eventually Tommy is able to sort of explain what is going on to like a main female protagonist. I think her name is Kara, who is Danny's uh, mom. And, um, you know, explaining the whole rune stuff. Cause, and uh, Tommy is living in a boarding house that is run by uh, an old lady named Miss Blankenship, uh, which is a callback to Halloween 3, by the way. There's like a reference to a Blankenship. So mm. there's that. And Blankenship is a little bit of a odd one. Like she, like, is, like, at one point, Danny you know, runs off as little kids do. And it's like watching like that silent version of Phantom of the Opera with this old lady, uh, Blankenship. And she talks about how like, you know, Halloween is sort of, you know, basically explaining the sort of lore of Halloween. And it was a great celebration to ghouls and all that stuff. And, but then she also mentions that she had been babysitting uh, Michael Myers the night that he would sneak out and kill his sister and so there's linkage there and then just sort of like going ahead a little bit it's a revealed that Blankenship is in on the Cult of Thorn scheme mm-hmm. and it basically kind of like just functioned as someone to like uh, keep watch of Michael and then sort of, I'm assuming, coax him eventually into doing his deed. And yeah, she's basically like a caretaker of the scheme as well. Yeah, no, and very interesting stuff. All the druid stuff, man. Like, it's funny, right? Because, like, none of the druid, like, Wiccan like magic shit is like real they basically just invented it all yeah but like it is absolutely true that they do point to druid stuff yeah and that's been around that's been in the franchise from the very beginning like the the like 1978 or 79 novelization of the original 78 movie like it opens talking about like some weird uh like some like celtic druidic like prince being disfigured and like being in love with a princess and like there being some like sort of clannish blood feud and then that leads to like an end like some you know events happen and then a descendant of that prince who was an ancestor of michael myers kills some people at like a barn dance in the 1890s and like this, and then now that's that curse has sort of moved on to Michael, and so like that the whole sense of like a kind of like blood curse stemming from like ancient druidic times has been in the franchise for a long time, um, and you know obviously it's like a lot of it is just sort of bullshit, but like see that'd yeah. be a cool doing sort of like a eight twenty four like period piece treatment of like 19th century michael myers oh yeah that's something you don't have to put him in space you know like do you go with that Uh, yeah no like i like that would be like a cool prequel to do like sort of like weird like 1800 it's like you know that sort of 
there's like a certain vibe of like old like Casper cartoons or like that like mm-hmm. the like the 50s like sleepy hollow movie the cartoon one where mm-hmm. it's like they're like all in that like sort of big like sort of like town grange or like barnyard kind of thing and it's like and i feel like that would be like an interesting sort of atmosphere to capture with like a movie that's like 1890s like Haddonfield, like when it's still like mostly rural and stuff yeah i think that would be cool yeah all right let's get that pitch ready for them <laughs> uh let's see here so basically more people in the Strode family start dying. There's that one like sort of himbo guy who gets laid, which yeah, right. But like inexplicably, he didn't know that Michael Myers lived in that house. And it's like, how did you not know? Like your your parents were talking about it in a previous scene. Yeah, I, I mean, know. I guess I guess that's why he's a himbo. He's not really paying attention much. That's a good point. Um, <laughs> yeah and like that whole part that whole part is just weird because it's sort of like it's one of like because he's like getting not getting it on with his girlfriend and it's sort of like and it's one of those sex scenes where it's like they had like a bunch of candles lit and it's sort of like <laughs> where, where did they find the time to light all these candles first teenagers famous for setting in the mood for a romantic interlude absolutely they're like all right first it's like we got we got to get the ambiance right (laughs) um but yeah there is a pretty good scene of like suspense though because like what was it carrot carolyn or whatever the female Mm -hmm. character the the mother of danny right she's there with tommy in the house across the street looking through a telescope and she like looks and realizes that dumbass like danny is like going back to their house when like they were like no don't go to the house michael myers is gonna kill everyone and it's like oh shit he's just running right in yeah classic kids just sort of like all right i'm gonna take off and (laughs) you know get killed and then yeah she retrieves him there's you know classic sort of suspense stuff a little bit of a callback to the original where like all the kind of bodies are placed in ways for the protagonist to see mm-hmm. um, which is like that's a classic Michael Myers move mm-hmm. and then they get back into the boarding house and then I think Dr. Loomis is there and so like it's it's like there's sort of the sense of alright feud the whole gang is back together but then you hear the sort of the man in black evil voice saying like kill for him or come to me or whatever to the Danny character. And it's clear at this point that this isn't just sort of like an, a hallucination or a vision, but it's like someone is actually in the room and saying that that's what I picked up on it because then Danny goes into the living room of the boarding house and is like, sort of like standing by the sort of man in black figure who's sitting down. And then this is the big reveal. This is the, no, I am your father moment where it's revealed that the man in black, the hat man, the sort of guardian of Michael Myers is the Dr. Wynn guy. Mm -hmm. And 
And then the cult members come in, you know, sort of seize Tommy and uh, Loomis. But Kara manages to break away and like run upstairs uh, to uh, the to, to uh, Tommy's room, and that's where uh, Blankenship is. And then she pulls a knife on her, revealing that she's a part of the plot. And uh, Kara sort of throws herself through a window to escape. And then this is a classic. This is a classic example of like how bad the editing of the theatrical version is. And then, because then, if I recall correctly, then they're suddenly all free and inside the sort of like <laughs> tunnels of the sanitarium. Yeah, it's a little bit jarring, but like it is interesting that they do a defenestration, right? Because like I don't know, man. Like there's something about defenestrations. Like they come up a lot in movies. I mean, partially because it's cool to depict throwing someone through <laughs> or jumping through a window. Either way, but like yeah. there's like some sort of significance to it that I'm still sort of working through in my head. It has something to do with like heresy i guess i don't know yeah well because wasn't like about it yeah like in medieval times wasn't it's like defenestration of like i feel like i see a lot like the defenestration of either like town name like bird Mm -hmm. name or like you know like monk or something it was always like a sort of heretical whether actual factor accused um yeah i feel like it, it has to be something related to it's like kind of because it's like, what is the ultimate depiction of like man's humanness? It's like, well, if you're thrown through a window, you're gonna fall. And so it's like, well, if you know your God is really gonna protect protect you, then you'll fly like an angel or something like that. Yeah. And then on the flip side, if you're like sympathetic, it's almost like a matrix thing where it's like you're breaking through and escaping almost like I don't know. Like, there's something there with that, and it comes up a lot. And I'm still trying to like nail down all the implications. But, um, yeah. So they're back in the tunnels, right? They're basically back at the psychiatric <laughs> facility. Yeah, and it's basically like the tor- it's basically the ending scene of the movie, right? Oh yeah, and it yeah the theatrical version. There's, you know, there's a lot of just sort of roaming around and running around. But then eventually Paul Rudd finds Kara, who's like all sort of dressed up in like a very kind of like folk horror kind of white gown thing. Um, And the purpose of that case in the product in the producer's cut, she was supposed to be the first sacrifice of Danny Strode, who was going to be the new Michael. And so, like, she was dressed up to be the new victim. But, like, they managed to get free. And they find Danny. They find the baby. And there's, like, a huge massacre scene, like, in an operating room where, like, Michael just goes in with, like, a a medical saw that looks like a machete. You know, Jason Voorhees style. And it's like a very kind of like strobe light kind of massacre, and um, which isn't in the product producer's cut. And uh, then there's a chase scene. Um, 
Yeah, there's a, some chase stuff. Then uh, after a while, you know, usual kind of, uh, you know, classic Halloween sort of stuff. Then uh, Tommy Doyle, Paul Rudd, like beats uh, Michael Myers to a pulp with an iron bar. And that part is weird because it's like, instead of blood, Michael is like oozing like weird, like snot color fluid. Hmm. And then, um, and then basically it's the ending of the movie and, uh, they're in like some van, all the whole gang and Tommy Doyle is like, come with us to, uh, Loomis and Loomis is very cryptic and he's like my work isn't done here (laughs) and then there's a close up on uh, Michael Myers's mask which is on the floor and there's you hear Loomis's scream and then it cuts back to the house cuts to a flickering jack-o'-lantern and then it cuts to credits and over the credits is like a really bad like mid 90s almost it sounds like uh like read rip off or something like that <laughs> now correct me if i'm wrong but uh didn't the paul rudd character at one point utilize like runes of light to like trap michael myers wasn't there something like that going on i think so i think it's like a magic circle or something wait is that in is that in the theatrical cut or is that in the producers, just in the producers cut? See, this is how disjointed it is. I know that is that is in the producers cut where like he's able to use the power of the runes to uh, stop Michael in his tracks. But I forget if that's in the theatrical cut as well. Yeah, because like now I'm wondering if I did in fact see the producer's cut. I'm honestly not sure. Yeah, that's that's sort of the well. It's funny, and I was sort of saying this bureau before before we record it. Like, hat it functions. You know, you could sort of look at like the two different versions, and especially the disjointed nature of the theatrical cut. Where it's like sort of trying to recall what exactly happened. It's sort of like in the same vein of like recovered memories of like, you know, Michelle remembers and like mm-hmm. all that sort of like satanic ritual abuse kind of stuff. And yeah, it's like sort of, I mean, this sort of is functions as adding to the lore of it because like the movies are like very, very similar to each other but like obviously not identical. And so like you could be talking, you know, or, you know, in this case, you'd be talking for like an hour and a half and like, you know, you never, it's like what you, you could be talking for a while about a movie, but then realize it's not the same movie. And I feel like that has like some kind of reflection of like, I don't know, weird esoteric shit. Yeah, no, for sure. Because like, it's so interesting, like just mul- just different narratives, but they like are very similar. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Interesting. So for Halloween, okay, how would you rank the like your enjoyment of the different entries roughly in order of like best to like for you personally? Like, which are your favorites and which are your least favorite? Um. 
Let's see. Well, I mean, I like, obviously the first one's going to be number one. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It's hard to say just because like they all have like their own sort of like different aspects of it, of what I like about them. Like first one is obviously the first, so it's the goaded one. Uh, Halloween 2 is cool just because it has like a very sort of like creepy like gothic kind of atmosphere to it. Yeah. 3 is it's like its own sort of weird sci-fi techno druid kind of vibe. Halloween 4 is cool just because it has like a sort of it probably has like the best opening credits of them just because it's like a very sort of Midwest Halloween vibe and it also has like a weirdly like it feels like a slasher equivalent of like Stephen King's The Stand or something like that like it has like a mm. wide scope Halloween 5 which is one of the worst ones but it has you know a cool mask you know that's it it's always a big you know most people dislike the mask in that one but I think it's very sort of creepy and that one has like a fun fall atmosphere Six, I mean, it has all the qualities that we've been talking about. And it, it's like one of, I think the only one that was actually filmed during fall. Mm-hmm. And so it has like an actual sort of autumnal atmosphere. Um, I guess H2O and Resurrection, I actually don't really care for very much. Like H2O is way too much in the kind of like self-referential teen sort of post screen kind of vibe mm-hmm. and resurrection it's cheesy but it has its fun qualities i guess um the rob zombie versions are just completely their own thing i mean i enjoy them for what they are but they're po- totally different yeah. and i've been enjoying this sort of like latest like reboot trilogy pretty well i mean it's they're obviously they have their issues but like they're obviously the halloween movie that have their have like the best like production values. And so, you know, that's always nice. It's good to see the money actually on the screen as opposed to being embezzled by, you know, whoever <laughs> the financiers are. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a sort of non-answer, I guess, but. No, no, I think that's good though. Um, interesting. Because like, I, okay, the things I really liked about it because I think I've covered the things I didn't like pretty well, but like the thing I really liked the depiction of a cult. I liked that. It links that to family trauma and that like we established, there's at least some depth to it where you can maybe read in even more going on with the family that the film maybe just alludes to. Mm -hmm. Uh, I like that it's ambitious and trying to tell a bunch of stories at the same time. Um, I like the magic shit with the Druids, you know, sort of overlapping with the cult themes. So I think there's a lot to like, and I liked what you said where it's like, if you squint, you know, like this is like a pretty good film. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So I enjoy it a lot. I think it's pretty it's, cool. It's like jazz. It doesn't <laughs> come to you. You have to go to it, you know. It's about it's you know, it's about the scenes they don't show. Yeah. They're they're uh hit they're hitting the notes, but they're kind of dancing around them. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, did you ever read the, uh, or I'm trying to recall from, from my research on this film, but was it for Halloween six that they had like a novelization or what, or were they just saying that they wrote out all the lore and was that ever made public? I guess is my question. Uh, well, there have been some novelizations. I, I cited earlier the novelization of the original but no, I think there's what you're talking about is like the guy who wrote it was like a huge Halloween head. And like he wrote out basically this huge like story Bible with like family tree and like yeah. all this stuff. But I don't that that was never made like published. Dang, because I feel like that would honestly I mean it would make things clearer, and I feel like a lot of the things that I wish were there. Um, would probably be in that, right? Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah, I'm sure that's, like, something that, like, you know, some, like, Halloween people are trying to get their hands on. Yeah. I wrote down a line, and I'm not sure which character said this, uh, but one of them said, restore balance to the natural order of things. Does that ring a bell? Yeah, I think that's Dr. Wynn said that, yeah. Okay, so we do have a little bit of an indication, like you said, I guess, that basically running this cult and causing like the chain reaction of Michael Myers killing people is restoring the natural order of things, which in maybe some like roundabout way would be like some vaguely eugenicist idea of like killing people is okay and good, in fact, or something. Yeah, well, that but, was like what we're, that's what we're ta- we were talking about when it's sort of like, they're talking about this whole mission is to restore the natural balance of things. Yeah. Like, it doesn't ever seem like whatever that natural order is, is even being restored in the first place. And if they just have to like, put the curse onto another kid, you know, put, you know, putting that devil mischief on, on this person. Like, there's never really an end in sight to that balancing act. And it's, and then so really it's just sort of like town elders being annoyed by, you know, kids and wanting to be dead or something. Yeah, no, for sure. Interesting ideas. Like, a lot of things that I like being, a lot of concepts being entertained. Definitely. It's definitely an it's an interesting movie that's like sort of like the ideas. It's one of those movies where it's like the ideas that it presents is a lot more are a lot more interesting than like actually watching the movie, I guess. Which kind of makes it perfect for this kind of discussion. Yeah. Because if it if it was just a great movie, you know, great movie, no notes. If there's no notes, then there's sort of no point in discussing it, you know? Yeah, because if it, yeah, if the film just depicted the thing, then it's like, just watch the movie. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not as, you know, into behind the scenes of Hollywood, right? But I did notice, first of all, that uh, I guess this film was filmed in Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting given yeah. your, your Mormon senses are tingling. Given a number of the themes of the film, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, then also, <clears throat> I noted that I think I saw 
around when I was reading about the franchise Bible that uh, there they played with other ideas, but I don't think these got directly put into the film that they were looking at maybe making Michael Myers being Dr. Loomis's son, but I guess they didn't go in that direction. And then they were also looking at Michael Myers' mother being a sex slave by the man in black. Oh, that would have been interesting. Definitely resonant resonant with uh, sort of trafficking and like all that kind of uh, McGowan kind of stuff. Right. So definitely like they were thinking about (laughs) including some even crazier stuff. Very interesting. Do you have uh, any other thoughts on the film? I think think that's about it, like on the film itself. Yeah, I think I sort of covered everything that I was sort of thinking about. So you're good for me to go into this Matamoro stuff? Oh yeah, man, I've been waiting for this.
So the cult in Halloween 6, they are depicted as druids, right? Or neo-druidic or whatever the fuck you want to call it. They don't overtly call them Satanists. I think, or I would argue, that they are coded as satanic. What do you think of that? Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, so for my section, right? I wanted to talk about the one of the clearest, most well-documented examples of a murderous satanic cult in the modern era. Like, start to finish, no arguments, this was a satanic murder cult, right? So maybe that's another reason why I thought that it would be good to talk about, because it, it's like, there's no arguing with this one. Like, that is for sure what this is. But to set that up, I do need to talk briefly about the source that I used for most of this stuff um, and to lay a little bit of the groundwork. So I have a passage from Dr. Carl Rashke and his book, Painted Black, From Drug Killings to Heavy Metal, The Alarming True Story of How Satanism is Terrorizing Our Communities. So for some of my listeners, I don't think that this is the case for most of my listeners, but like Dr. Rashke is frequently painted with the same brush as a lot of these quote-unquote satanic panic guys. We'll talk about whether he actually is or not, but yeah, he is not a crank though, because he is formally trained, he's an academic, right? So maybe you could <laughs> criticize him on those grounds, but he was trained in like philosophy and theology. He went to Harvard, has a PhD, and as of when he was writing that book, he was a professor of religious studies at the University of Denver. Ironically, his specialty was continental philosophy, as well as the philosophy of religion and just general like theories of religion. And ironically, he was actually way into Derrida and Heidegger. So like, this is not a guy who like fits into the normal stereotype of like who falls prey to quote unquote satanic panic. Like Derrida is almost like a bugaboo for a certain type of Christian who doesn't want those dang social relativist postmodern types, right? Yeah, this is not like an evangelical like Christian sort of like talk radio guy talking about that stuff. Exactly. That's it's so funny, right? So this book has been attacked. The book Painted Black has been attacked as sloppy. And I can kind of see that because like I saw a few errors through just a first reading of it. Um, some of them were like cultural. Like it didn't seem that he was that acquainted with Mexico necessarily. But like, I don't think it really discredits everything he's talking about, which is very real. So in the introduction to the book, Rashke opens by saying, the American intelligentsia has a tremendous capacity for what psychologists call denial. The trained academic mind has a difficult time accepting that there are people who could willfully do evil for the sake of evil. <laughs> I thought that was good. <laughs> Opening with owning the academics just a little bit. <laughs> Got it. Rashke talks about Satanism. He says, Satanism is a sophisticated and highly effective motivational system for the spread of violence and cultural terrorism, all the while hiding behind the cloak of the First Amendment. I point out that Rashke is hardly leaning into like a right-wing crank position that this is like spiritual warfare. Instead, he's arguing that Satanism is like a mimetic ideological system that happens to bind people together 
in doing crimes. And like that some people may or may not actually truly believe in it is almost beside the point. Cause like people don't really, most people don't quibble over whether like ISIS actually believes in their radical version of Islam. Like it's almost beside the point, right? They're, they're a group that exists. You don't really have to try to discern whether they're being genuine or disingenuous about it, you know? Yeah, it's sort of like, I don't know, it's like in-group mechanism of like maintaining the in-group or like, you know, like the shibboleth, like what you said, the mimetic thing, where it's like, if you want to be part of this scene, you have to first sort of like, you know, say you're a Satanist, but it's like, it's not, it's not the fact that they're worshiping Satan. It's, It's sort of like, it's like that's how you get that's like sort of the password at the speakeasy i guess yeah and so like again right rashki is not really doing the normal satanic panic thing he's like this group exists it doesn't matter whether they believe it or not if they say they do and they act a certain way you need to study the group and its behavior not you know relitigating whether they quote unquote believe it so with that groundwork, I think it's good to talk about Los Narcos Satanicos de Matamoros in the state of Tamaulipas, Mexico, which is to say the narco-Satanists of Matamoros. Rashki says, The Matamoros case conformed in almost textbook fashion to what many criminologists and a few anthropologists have been saying about the darker recesses of the occult for decades that it is a bonding mechanism that ensured both loyalty and control within tight-knit conspiratorial groups. Interesting, right? Like, I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. So the natural start would be to talk about the leader of this group, Adolfo de Jesus Constanza, who was nicknamed El Padrino. So Constanza was born in Miami, Florida in 1962. Great time, right? I just, I freaking love like American tabloid and the others that, you know, I love all those Miami scenes, right? Yeah. Well, it's sort of, I'm already, I don't know anything about his background, but anyone basically named Adolf born in Miami in the (laughs) sixties, you got to sort of figure who their family would be. (laughs) So they were Miami, they were Cuban expats, right? That tracks. Yeah. It's believed that his father was a drug trafficker, but he wasn't around much. His mother was way into Santeria in Cuba. Constanzo moved with his mother to Puerto Rico, where he was an altar boy. Constanzo was considered a gifted child, and one report called him a psychic prodigy. Now, it's not really clear why, probably because his mom was interested in this stuff, but he went with he went with his mother as a kid on trips to Haiti to learn voodoo. Now, as a teenager, Constanzo was said to have started practicing Palo Mayombe, which Rashki takes great pains to note that Constanzo was not clearly doing voodoo, Santeria, or Palo Mayombe, but he was doing some sort of idiosyncratic version that doesn't seem to have any clear known parallels with anything else. But, of course, it was clearly informed by those traditions. 
Well, what I'm inst- instantly thinking of when you mentioned that he was an altar boy, and I mean, who knows? Mm-hmm. Like maybe altar boy is just something that you are when you're in that milieu and you're that age. But I'm instantly thinking it was obviously some kind of like syncretism. And like, I think you've talked in the past about how like, uh, like syncretic sort of mysticism is like a very easy entry point of like sort of like fascistic thought and stuff. Yeah. And like taking essentially like the trappings of this stuff, but then like perverting it. That's like a classic move, right? So like Yeah. Like, I mean that's sort of by definition Satanism is because it's like the inversion of whatever yeah. the sort of mainline thing is. Exactly. So like Rashki takes great pains to point out that Santeria and Balamayombe and Voodoo, none of them do human sacrifices. Mm-hmm. at least like not known and it's you know not likely honestly either that like the overwhelming majority of them are into that at all which is super relevant because of what Constanzo ends up doing right that said there is sort of a teleological outgrowth of the logic because like several of those traditions would incorporate animal sacrifices and it's sort of like you could intuit that a human sacrifice would be more like the same thing, but more so, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it's sort of at that point, it's just defining what isn't or isn't an animal. Yeah. You know? And like, you know, human sacrifices have happened in a bunch of cultures and so forth. But like Rashki points out that Santeria specifically is actually what we would consider white magic. And he. Mm-hmm in fact, kind of praises Santeria in a limited fashion. He's just like, it's cool. It's not what this guy was about. Um, So this is not a case where, like, Constanzo simply got way too into voodoo or something because, like, he, like, has other influences too, right? Yeah. So Constanzo also got ideas from Mexican folk magic traditions as well as presumably his own private fantasies. And then this is a very interesting addition. The 1987 film, The Believers, which I mentioned before, yeah, was actually a key component to Constanzo's like magic cosmological worldview of his cult. So, so he watched it and he had this sort of Leo snapping his fingers mo- movement yeah. moment where- or the thing, it's like, oh man, watching Drive or being like, oh, that's literally me. <laughs> literally me, for real, for real. <laughs> so The Believers was written by Mark Frost, right? Who did Twin Peaks. Yeah. And the film, in a very, just a high level thing, it basically depicts a satanic sort of like brujeria cult. The film shows, like, Santeria in a good light, too, because, like, the character who's trying to, like, help is, like, doing Santeria to protect, you know. Long story short, it's like a satanic murder cult sacrificing people. That's all you need to know, really, for that. But super interesting movie. So, Constanzo, as an adult, right, he's been bouncing around the Caribbean. But as an adult, he moves to Mexico City, where he sets up his own cult. Initially, it's him and his boys his two homosexual lovers. Classic move. Disguise being dudes. Disguise being dudes. He sets up several business endeavors. 
First and foremost, he started producing gay pornography. Second, he started making new age business moves. So he would do like astrology. He would cast spells for people. He would do tarot card readings, things of this nature. Now, here's where it gets really interesting, okay? Because Constanzo was doing this among Mexican high society, the glitterati, as it were. His magic shop was in the Zona Rosa, which was like the nightclub district of Mexico City, and he had high society customers. So initially, what he was doing would be like ritual sacrifices of like chickens and so forth, but he would also start to do like cleansings and ritual bathings of customers in like blood. Uh, But pretty soon they started incorporating human bone magic, which is to say like going to like graveyards and shit and like stealing human bones, which is like the key component of like Palo Mayombe, Uh, Palo being stick. And I don't know exactly the whole terminology, but like it weirdly makes me think of like, uh, what is it? Skull and bones. Well, yeah, where they have to like lay in like a coffin and stuff, right? Or like they stole like Geronimo's bones and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. What it also reminds me of is like, I mean, it's sort of get this is getting into like Pizzagate stuff, but like it reminds me of like all those allegations about like spirit cooking, but like real kind of. Yeah. No, there's some fucking spirit cooking in this story, man. Damn. So we are talking about Constanzo and his group digging up bones from graveyards for a cauldron. Spirit cooking, basically. I mean, uh, they didn't call it that or whatever, but like... So practitioners of Palo Mayombe have been known to rob graves in order to get bones for these purposes. The difference being that they don't, like, start killing people. Like, I'm not trying to, like, disparage Palo Mayombe necessarily, right? So... At a unspecified point of point in time, they start killing people. It's not entirely clear how many people they kill in Mexico. Uh, but in Mexico City, the police identified maybe 20 people that they actually might have killed in this time period. Damn. Yeah, people who were mutilated and murdered. Uh, this is before they go to Matamoros. Some of the victims were members of the gay underworld, as it were, and some were agricultural workers and or peasants. So in both cases, people that, you know, wouldn't really get a like a vigorous like investigation by police if they went missing. Yeah, like the so-called they're like the invisibles, I guess is the term they say. Yeah. So at some point, Constanzo becomes acquainted with the Hernandez brothers, which is to say the Hernandez family from the Cartel del Golfo, right? The Gulf Cartel. Mm. And at some point, they also bring in a woman named Sarah Aldrete, who becomes the high priestess and often the literal bait for drawing in people to do these human sacrifices. Um, have you seen that movie by what's his name? Um, Roberto Rodriguez, uh, from Dusk Till Dawn. Yes. Yeah. She's like the Salma Hayek character, I assume, right? Yeah. I think that this is also like 
I think that movie was inspired by this as well. I believe it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So at some point, well, we know when they moved to Matamoros, uh, it's in 1988. They specifically go to this ranch called Rancho Santa Elena there in Matamoros. It's like pretty, at that point, it was out in the middle of nowhere relatively. So a lot of privacy. So they basically continue what they're doing. They start carrying out ritual murders, except now they're doing it for and on behalf of the cartel. They also store drugs at the ranch, you know, like for the cartel, right? Now, Rashke wrote, it is difficult to judge whether it was the drugs that created the Matamoros horror or the satanic belief system. Most likely it was an inseparable combination of the two. Which I would argue, this is, again, I'm not trying to be the Rashke defender, but it hardly smacks of like satanic panic, I would argue. So in March of 1989, the cult fucks up because they abduct an American student who was there on spring break, a guy named Mark Kilroy, and they murder him, right? So Kilroy was from a, I think, kind of wealthy Texas family. They had enough clout to get Texas to get the Mexican police to crack down to, like, find him. They didn't know that he was murdered initially, but, like... They got a ton of scrutiny, so the Mexican police basically only had to scratch the surface to see, like, a literal horror show, and they are just like, oh, fuck, okay, we should shut this down. Yeah. <laughs> so they raided the ranch, right? And so when the Mexican police raided the ranch, there were U.S. authorities involved, basically. And it's funny because the Mexican, the Mexican police, the federales, when they did the raid, they called in a curandero, or like a I guess like a white magician to basically help them and supposedly the US authorities were like laughing at them for being so like primitive until they all saw what the fuck was at the ranch and they were like, oh shoot okay, we probably do need something like that so here's what they found at the ranch they found all kinds of cult paraphernalia, including the following. A bloody altar, voodoo paraphernalia. You'll like this one. La Palma cigars. Ah, stoey <laughs> clock. That's right. Rum, human body parts, animal bones, chickens and goat heads, pennies, gold beads, and so forth. Actually, it's interesting because I, the cigars... I guess what they say, and maybe you're familiar with this idea, but there's apparently the reason why they have cigars in this occult milieu is that the smoke somehow like draws out the spirits or something. Oh, well, I haven't encountered it. I mean, I've drank in enough spirits when I've smoked cigars, but I haven't encountered any. So maybe yeah. I'll, maybe I'll check for that until next time. Maybe you have to kill a German shepherd before, but uh, yeah, there we go. I'm sure you're fine smoking cigars. <laughs> uh, the most horrifying part of their discovery was a huge iron cauldron, which contained a literal witch's brew. We're talking human body parts. We're talking brains, hearts, lungs, and testicles. Now, reportedly, all the members of this cult would regularly drink from this cauldron. Mm. 
like in rituals in order to sanctify themselves upon capture because like most of this cult was like captured alive they were quoted as saying that the brew was made to protect them so that police would not arrest them so bullets would not kill them and so they could make more money we're talking satanic cannibalism man So, Mexican police found 15 human corpses on the property, including the body of that Mark Kilroy guy. Now, the majority of them were found headless. Now, Constanzo fled. He was not captured. He got to Mexico City. The police were pursuing him, and it led to a standoff with police. And at a certain point when he realized he wasn't going to get out of this, Constanzo asked one of his followers, a hitman, to shoot him which he did, and that's how Constanzo died. I guess it's convenient to have a hitman as a follower, so it's an easy ask, you know? Honestly, it's like, hey, just a quick Uzi spray and uh, I'm out. The DEA was investigating a theory that Constanzo didn't die in the shootout, but Mexican police said that they confirmed it was him through fingerprints. Also, they have photos of him dead, so like I don't know. It seems likely, actually. Yeah. But here's where it gets a little bit more noited, right? So in his apartment in Mexico City, they found sophisticated electronic security equipment, like for surveillance, right? Uh Uh-huh. They also found a marble altar with a lot of the same magic paraphernalia. And so basically... Mexican authorities arrested the majority of this cult. We're talking 14 cult members ultimately charged with, like, murder, drug trafficking, and other crimes. Uh, Mexican police would later carry out, like, a full exorcism. They would burn down the buildings at Rancho Santa Elena, particularly the one known as the Devil's Cathedral. And that's pretty much the end of the cult, right? (laughs) Wow. Except, (laughs) here we go. Now, typically, that's where the story ends. If you were to listen to, I don't know, like a normie ass true crime story, that's where the story ends. And there's like an inherent tendency to just be like, damn, that's some crazy shit the Mexicans get up to with their cartels and just like wipe your hands and move on. But we're on program to chill. Things are never so simple. Right. We, We have to go to the next level. Talk about the salient details that tend to get left out of the story whenever people talk about this group. First of all, the high priestess of the group, Sarah Aldrete, she was like a normal, like U.S. college student. She was like from a working class Mexican-American family. So like everyone was shocked on both sides of the border that she was involved in something like this. She discussed having multiple personalities and you know, just a hint at something deeper going on. Uh, Either way, she got a 62-year prison sentence in Mexico, and Texas said that if she ever gets out of prison, for sure they're going to extradite her and put her back in prison. There's this interesting article from a Mexican newspaper, El Universal, which has the misleading title, Narco Satanica, Pido Perdón a Dios, which is to say, Narco-Satanist, I ask God for forgiveness. 
<laughs> and the article, I translated a portion of it. They're interviewing her, right? And it says, the curious thing, commented the woman who's been known since, since 1989 as the priestess, the godmother, the concubine of the devil, the narco-fanatic, and the narco-Satanist. The curious thing is that the authorities hid and disappeared information about the many names of people in high places in society and the government and artists who formed this sect. I know that was a little bit awkward. I probably could have phrased it better, but basically she's alleging that they had accounting records linking Constanzo to Mexican high society, which went missing. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense that there because it's like you said earlier that he would be doing, you know, basically weird magic parlor tricks and spirit cooking stuff with like Mexican high society before he created this sort of death cult. So like that it doesn't it doesn't make sense that like he would like cut off those ties that like that would still be an ongoing thing. Exactly. She also said, I don't think the religion will end with us because it has a lot of people in it. They found a temple in Monterey that isn't even related to us. It will continue. I think that sort of speaks to Rashke's like idea of this as like a mimetic ideology that is like specifically useful for certain types of people. Absolutely. Now, apparently the Matamoros cult had Texas looking at Henry Lee Lucas's statements much more closely, specifically because Henry Lee Lucas was describing an organization similar to what existed in Matamoros, which is to say a satanic drug trafficking organization out of Mexico. Like, as it turns out, everyone thought he was just like making shit up. And then lo and behold, they found essentially the same thing he was describing. And then they're like, huh, I wonder if it's that one. <laughs> Although the timeline doesn't work, right? Because like that group wasn't operating when he was talking about it. It's just they were doing the exact same thing. So it's like, uh, I don't know. Uh. But <laughs> just one more level of weirdness. We got to stack on this, okay? Constanzo had even more curious ties. He was linked to the Mexican chief of Interpol, a guy named Florentino Ventura. Constanzo was linked to various producers of gay pornography in Mexico. He was linked to the killings of several gay men separate from the 20 or so that you know we mentioned before. This was just his side hobby. Right, yeah. So these are guys that like don't appear to have been murdered by his cult, but do appear to have been murdered in a way that recreated the Aztec-style slayings, which is to say killing them, taking out their heart, and like consuming the heart. Oh, kind of, it kind of reminds me of like Dahmer kind of stuff. Yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, especially like the sort of like combination of like the gay thing with like extreme mutilation and cannibalism. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that was sort of phrased uh, rough, uh, the gay thing, but I think you know what I mean. Sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So further 
U.S. and Mexican authorities both zeroed in on Adolfo Constanzo's travels. He went to the United States. He went many, many times to Houston, but he also went to Chicago. Now, as it turns out, the Gulf Cartel, the broader organization, but including this sect, were supplying drugs to the Chicago Mafia. Through the Chicago mob, they were basically distributing drugs to most of the country. Or, you know, like maybe half or something, right? Constanzo worked directly with a guy named Manuel Pancho Jaramillo, who was a key figure in Chicago at one point. Jaramillo was involved in trafficking drugs in Chicago, but he also oversaw money laundering. He was also very notably a member of the Republican Party in Chicago. He also worked as a superintendent for Ford Motor Company. So you have this guy in the Republican side of Chicago politics, and then you have Gacy on the Democrat side of Chicago politics. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, if you, you know, just taking the bus depot scene, just a few spots down the line, you have Haddonfield. So there you go. It all connects. Yeah. So U.S. authorities suspected that there was like a Matamoros cult angle to certain drug slayings in Tucson, as well as San Francisco, as well as Houston. Now, let me ask you, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I'm just curious because I know that this documentary came out on Amazon. It was called The Last Narc. Did you see that one? I did not, no. I haven't actually either, but I've heard that it's actually phenomenal to the point where like people are like, wait, Amazon put this out? <laughs> What's the angle on this? Right. So essentially the last narc documentary talks about the famous murder of this DEA agent named Kiki Camarena. Oh, yeah, I've heard about this case. Yeah. Yeah. So this guy, he he very likely could have been tortured and or murdered directly by Felix Rodriguez, the famous Cuban-American CIA agent, the guy who also basically was involved in killing Che Guevara. Yeah. And so Felix Rodriguez, like, probably didn't shoot him, but, like, he might have interrogated Kiki Camarena, right? Because either way, what we know for sure is that Kiki Camarena got tortured and murdered for being too close to something and that something is generally understood to be at a minimum the cia's involvement in drug trafficking in mexico right Mm -hmm. now they're pretty sure that the group that actually killed tortured and killed camarena was the guadalajara cartel but the thing is going back a few decades the hernandez family was involved in the that cartel as well yeah like in the subsequent years there have been reshifting of alliances and like different cartels going after each other but like one of the guys one of the main suspects for who was torturing camarena was this guy named javier barba hernandez and rashke or he points out that this hernandez is related to the hernandez clan in matamoros who Constanzo was working for. I don't think that like Camarena was too close or like looking at the Matamoros cult at all necessarily, 
I think he was probably killed for different reasons. But like, it is interesting to see that like, this is the same like milieu. They're not very far from each other. And like, oh, yeah. a lot of the narcos like know each other, right? So like, that guy was not very far from the satanic shit, basically. Yeah, it's sort of like, you know, it's just like, it's one interlock connection away, basically. Exactly. Now, we got to ask, right? What is the purpose of this? Like, what was the purpose of the Matamoros cult? Did a narco-Satanist just get out of hand? Like, a certain unnamed podcast that I love to make fun of, but I will be nice this time and not mention them, said that this was just a case of, like, a serial killer who ended up in charge of, like, a cartel or rather, like, a gang. And that's all there is to it. But I don't think that's the case. Uh, but like, you know, we sort of, we sort of have been dancing around this, but like, what is the point of the satanic shit? And like, why take it so far, far enough to like literally do cannibalism? Cause like on the one hand, we have what the cult members actually said upon capture. They said that torture gives them power. And that torturing people allows the possibility of capturing a victim's soul. They said that Constanzo told them that the soul of the victim being tortured is taught through the ordeal to fear the murderer completely and for eternity. At the same time, the energy from the pain and fear of the victim is appropriated sacramentally by the torturer in order to enhance his magical strength and theoretically his soul. So, like, almost like some sort of, like, energy vampire thing. And then you get a little bit of that, like, weird sort of, like, Zodiac idea of, like, killing people and then they have to, like, be your slave in the afterlife, you know? Yeah. And, like, I don't know about you, Blauer, but, like, me, I think the Subliminal Jihad Boys, like, several people have been like, where the fuck did that idea come from? Like, you know, that, like, you kill someone and they're your slave in the afterlife. Like, who has ever taught that? You know? Like, I couldn't... Yeah. Like, I'm, like, huh. trying to, like, trace where that idea came from. And, like, I don't think that this is the origin. But, like, this is, like, one entry in this sort of insane occult idea being spread, you know? Yeah, I mean, there's got to be some weird, like, theosophical text somewhere where it's like the souls that you, you know, that you accrue belong to you or something like that. Mm hmm. Like, I, I wonder if there is out there in some book somewhere where that came from or like some indication of where it came from. And like, I don't know, maybe it like goes back. Maybe it's one of those like, impossible to pin down things like where does the idea of human sacrifice come from like you could never maybe pin it down but like it just seems so weirdly specific though you know yeah well and i mean to sort of loop it back to the halloween movies there's a specific moment in halloween kills when they're sort of like vaguely gesturing towards like what exactly gives michael myers power which in the timeline of halloween kills which is like the sort of reboot one that only acknowledges the first movie so all the thorn stuff that we've talked about is completely moot 
but it's like still so resonant because in that movie they talk about how like every time he kills he transcends and so that like each killing so each sort of like stealing of a life is like somehow sort of like bringing him more power in that sort of like energy vampiric way yeah yeah exactly like there is this idea like it's so interesting so Rashki argues that American media, a lot of journalists writing about the Matamoros cult, missed the point of it entirely. That Constanzo and his cult were not irrational. They were adopting a magical worldview, and therefore they had a completely different logic than like modern day frameworks for understanding things. Mm-hmm. I think that gets sort of at where maybe this idea comes from with the whole, like, slaves in the afterlife thing. Like, I don't know. But additionally, there's this interesting thing with Constanzo that he adopted the idea of a Nagual, which is to say a guardian spirit, which is to say, like, a familiar, which is an idea that exists in both Mexican folk magic as well as Carlos Castaneda's version of it. You also see it in popular culture, such as like the Golden Compass. And also you see it in something like, well, tons of video games and stuff too. But like Aleister Crowley discusses one's higher self, one's demon or daemon or whatever. And mm-hmm. or sometimes conflating, sometimes different with one's holy guardian angel. And it's not entirely clear where Constanzo gets all of these ideas. But at the same time, it's almost like there's this dark side perennial philosophy for occult shit that different traditions all sort of are drawing from similar ideas, right? Yeah, absolutely. So on Program to Chill, I am nothing if not a materialist. (laughs) So I always have to bring it back to grounded material reasons, right? So Roshki says, whether Constanzo actually believed in the devil is irrelevant. It's the mutilated corpses that make the difference. He also writes, a point regularly missed, however, is that the conspiratorial tie-in between diverse cells in the cultic organization may not have anything to do with religion at all. On the contrary, the linkage may be quite mundane and commercial. In this case, the unifying element was overland drug operations. So, yet again, I have to point out, Rashki is not exactly doing classic satanic panic shit. It's like, he's like pointing clearly at like, this is about drug trafficking. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Basically, Rashki points out that Constanzo had developed a sort of motivational corporate training program for cartels which is to say narco-Satanism. He said, it imparted a heady feeling of power and invincibility from the adherents in the same connection it inspired terror and the will to maintain extremely tight loyalties, all of which are absolutely critical for the drug trafficking profession. So like whatever whatever might happen theoretically to like your immortal soul and or your central nervous system after torturing someone to death and then eating their body parts, regardless of that, it sure will fucking bind you to the people who participated in doing that. Right. 
Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. So to wrap up here, and this is the last little bit, I think Rashke points out that when the United States invaded Panama and went after Manuel Noriega, they raided his house, right? And they found much of the same paraphernalia that Adolfo Consanza owned. Further, there's this quote-unquote military cult expert, Chief Warrant Officer James R. Dibble, who was a special agent in the Army's Criminal Investigation Division, informally known as the Goat Busters. <laughs> and he was brought in to examine Noriega's, you know, cultic stuff, including his uh, headquarters, basically near Panama City, where they found freezers full of these things called trabajos or workings, which are supposed to be black magic weapons. And they were apparently supposedly aimed at a variety of enemies, including several U.S. presidents, Senator Jesse Helms, Henry Kissinger, and like a Miami judge. (laughs) It's like in some of those cases, it's like, hey, if only it worked out, you know. Honestly. Yeah. <laughs> bring in the bring in the goat buster to examine the dictator's uh, Funko Pop collection. <laughs> Damn, I want to join the goat busters. Um, so uh, also they found a picture of Ronald Reagan covered in red wax. I guess that is supposed to immobilize him. Which I mean, like he did get Alzheimer's. So oh yeah, mm-hmm. maybe from a certain point of view. <laughs> so Dibble also wrote because I found articles that he wrote he said that Santeria is beautiful and benevolent and it has nothing to do with this shit and Dibble in particular has a huge gripe with Satanism not with Santeria you know voodoo and so forth he, he wrote and I think this is a nice thing to end on he said If we discount or do not give credence to their religious convictions, we have underestimated the enemy. Which, I don't think you need to support the police actions in Panama to recognize the truth of that statement. Absolutely. Damn, that's wild. I know, right? So it's just like, when Halloween 6 is like depicting this cult, it's like, these cults do exist. They are out there. Like, this isn't like purely Hollywood invention, right? Yeah, well, and it's sort of just sort of taking, I think, I forget if you're quoting him or if you were saying earlier, where it's sort of like, well, like Satanism is like a kind of inversion of like, it doesn't have to be specifically Christian. Satanism is just sort of the inversion of any tradition that like, you know, Santeria or like, you know, Druidic traditions, all that stuff Mm -hmm. like. So, yeah. You know, going, I think you asked me earlier of whether the cult in uh, Halloween 6 is satanic. And it's like, it definitely is, even though it isn't like sort of anti-Christian, it is like a sort of inversion of a normal kind of quote unquote normal sort of druidic tradition. Yeah. And and like even their roles, right? So like they're doctors who are supposed to be healing people and they're like doing the opposite of that. Like. And, like, another tradition that it seems sort of like an inversion of, or like a kind of version of, I guess, is, um, because one thing that I was always struck by about 
this movie is like the echoes that it has with like Kanema or like sort of assault sorcery and like tribal traditions in the Amazon. Mm. And there's a book about it um, called Dark Shamans. And I mean, this is a like a sort of, I haven't done like an, enough reading on it and, you know, maybe, you know, more reading would sort of dispel it, but like on the surface level, it, it like reminds me a lot of not just sort of the Halloween franchise, but like the slasher genre as a whole, because it's all about like uh, the sort of ritualist. It's basically elongated human sacrifice where instead of just like the single sort of action on the altar, it's the ritualistic stalking and mutilation and finally killing Mm. of the sort of subject of the sacrifice and that always seemed resonant to me of just sort of slasher movies in general and to get sort of ultra spooky with it is now that we have the moving image that kind of serves as kind of like a expression of i guess i don't know i don't know the right words to use here but like it Basically, the moving image can now be a substitution for actually doing the thing. And so in lieu of actually killing people, you're able to like sort of depict the killing of people and inflict that onto mass audiences. And that Mm -hmm. kind of serves as like the modern version of it. I mean, this is, I feel like this is now the sort of after dark section of it. So this is, this is more sort of wild speculation. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, you're right. Cause like slasher films have like multiple stages, right? It's not just the killing. It's like the looking through the hedges or the bushes. And it's like a certain amount of chasing, like all of these yeah. conventions we expect all of those could be theoretically like ritualized. Hmm. Yeah, well, because it's it's not just enough to kill the victim. The victim has to be scared first. Yeah. And like explicitly like not semi-explicitly within the lore of Halloween, the whole idea is Michael Myers is like you know, one theory is it's like he's trying to relive the events where he killed his sister kind of thing. And so it definitely is, you know, even if it's not like ritualistic in terms of like full on, like kind of like occult kind of stuff, if it's a premeditated premeditated murder, it's going to be some kind of ritual to somebody, I guess. Yeah, no, for sure. And like, Lord knows there's a lot to unpack with serial killers, but like, what is one of the main things that they do particularly, but to like ritualize everything in some private cosmology that only makes sense to them. Absolutely. Mm. And yeah. And the one other thing that I was thinking about when you were talking about uh, the Marco Satanists, is it just kind of, and you touched on it and we touched on it when you, you expanded the sort of, the domain to Chicago and stuff like that. It's like, it all reminded me a little bit because I just can't help but like think of like, you know, like Mina, Arkansas and like all the sort of like eighties, like drug smuggling. And it'd be interesting to like go back 
actually to like the daily newspapers and like police blotters of that area area of that time and like read like what if and, th- and like I said this is like pure speculation but like what if in Mena Arkansas of that time like there was like reports of like some like masked weirdo not even specifically doing anything like criminal but just like being a weirdo in a certain area and like that is the area that like they didn't want people to go into and so then it's like we've been talking about like the motive exactly of like the cult of thorn and you know based on what you talked about it seems obvious to me that like smith's grove was basically just a sort of depot for housing and then shipping off more kilos of cocaine and stuff like that and michael myers and the thorn cult was just a kind of uh mystification to make sure people were off the scent of the trafficking off yeah right and then it's just like what about that whole boys on the track shit it's like you know yeah yeah were they doing something like is there some sort of more like anglo version of like narco satanism i'm just asking questions right <laughs> oh yeah anglo or or maybe uh in this case celtic yeah honestly <laughs> <laughs> oh fuck <laughs> um let's see i'll cite my sources here for this stuff so i drew upon of course painted black from drug killings to heavy metal the alarming true story of how Satanism is terrorizing our communities by Carl Raschke. I used a book, evil serial killers in the minds of monsters by Charlotte Grieg. I used a article from El Universal and then a couple articles that uh, the Dibble guy talked about. Oh man. No, that was good. That was some, that was some good shit. A hundred percent. Let's see here. So if we're talking, okay, I'm going to put all the links in, but do you want to talk a little bit about uh, Apocalypse Confidential? Just plug it again. Oh, yeah. Um, Apocalypse Confidential, apocalypse-confidential.com is, uh, we like to sort of tongue-in-cheek call it a psyop sleaze rag because I think (laughs) one past contributor referred to it as such and it's like hey that has a fun ring to it um right now uh we publish these days mostly uh fiction and poetry actually although i would like to get some more sort of like weird kind of essay kind of stuff out there so any listeners to this email us at contact at apocalypse-confidential.com um if you have any essay ideas or any other fiction or poetry or whatever but yeah basically we're interested in the underworld and like the underworld being a combination of both like criminological so like you know gangsters and pulp kind of crime stuff but then also uh demonological so like the occult Mm. kind of side like we like both of those elements um and let's see we Let's most recently we had our summer of the shark special. Uh, actually, yeah, I think exactly a month ago. And our next special is going to be for our Mrs. Day, and it's going to be t- it's titled simply War. Yeah, and so <laughs> all kinds of basically like a cult or criminal kind of 
like kind of war stuff. Like we don't really want, you know, if if we're doing this as like a call for submissions, less sort of sci-fi or straight up like battlefield kind of stuff, but more like, I don't know, soldiers doing like a drug running operation or I don't know, like weird, freaky, like, I don't know, killer rats and like World War One trenches, like, you know, that kind of vibe. Um, yeah, no, because like, I know all the time I have listeners who send me articles or like tell me some interesting story. And if there's one thing I believe, it's that my listeners are all very talented. I can prove that, right? Absolutely. And sometimes they come on this show, but sometimes either because the topic doesn't work or it's too short or like it would just work better in a printed medium. You know, that is a super great avenue to also tell some of these stories, I think, because there's a lot of good stuff that people bring me that like could very well show up in Apocalypse Confidential, which I think would be super cool. Oh, 100%. And like, it doesn't have to be we sort of eschew the whole like five paragraph, you know, structure that we were taught in uh, school, whereas, you mm-hmm. know, the classic, like it can be just like a sustained paragraph of like full on weirdness that like just sort of is an extrapolation. Like it doesn't have to be, and actually I prefer it when it is that kind of like weirdo kind of style. Oh Yeah. No, I think that's so cool. Like, oh, yeah. And just amazing art always as well. It's always worth checking out that stuff. 